Hello, I'm novelist T. Caragason Boyle, and you're listening to New York and Company with Leonard Lopate on WNYC New York Public Radio. People have been calling David Foster Wallace's new book, Infinite Jest, many things. Falstaffian, monstrous, post-postmodern. The term genius gets used quite a bit as well. One thing is for sure, it's definitely the biggest novel of the year, weighing in at 3 pounds, 3 ounces, with 1,079 pages. It's not exactly a tome to be taken lightly. And... It's been selling quite rapidly, with a second printing already underway. So, just who is the perpetrator of this magnum opus, and what is he attempting here? Well, I can tell you David Foster Wallace has a previous novel, The Broom of the System, and a short story collection, Girl with Curious Hair. But, for further details, we have a wonderful chance of asking him himself. Mr. Wallace joins me now on New York and Company. Hello. Hello. Uh, I understand that it took you three years to write this book. Did you have any idea that it was going to take that long? Mm, I had an idea that I wanted to do something long and kind of sad, and I knew it would take at least a couple of years. I didn't really know how long the book was going to be and how long it would take to yeah. write. And it was only when you were in the middle that you realized that it was going to go on for a couple of thousand pages? There was kind of a, I remember a dark period in the middle when I sort of realized <laughs> that things were not as I had planned, yeah. Well, there's nothing wrong with it, and some pretty good books have been really long, but modern publishers don't exactly love the idea of a book this big. So was there a resistance when uh, Little Brown realized that you were going to come in with a really big book? Well, the book that I delivered to the editor, Michael Peach, um, in the summer of 94 was, was several hundred pages longer than it is now, so there were some cuts. Michael, they bought the book. Um, it's the only thing I've ever done that I sold before it was done because I just <clears throat> basically needed to buy groceries. Um, <laughs> and uh, You got an, a nice advance on this book, too. Uh, I got enough to live on for a couple mm-hmm. of years, yeah. No, they've been they've been very nice. I, um, uh, Michael, I think, knew ahead of time that it, that it was, that it was going to be long, and I knew ahead of time that probably what I was going to do was going to end up being longer than would really be sort of felicitous for the book and so Michael and I kind of had an arrangement before I even delivered it that he was going to take something that was long and difficult but I was going to need some help um, making it making it sort of more accessible how did you describe it to Michael Peach when you uh, when you told him that you were working on this book Uh, did did he want did he want any detail I don't know that I really described it he uh, um, I think I had done the first 250 or 300 pages and 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 had sent those out and um, he was an editor that I'd known and um, I think I told him some of the stuff that was going to happen and I think he was able to more or less deduce from that that it was going to take a while. Well, it really helped that he was in your corner. Uh, He convinced Little Brown to sign you in the first place. He did get the nickname Eye Strain in the course of of (laughs) editing this book, I gather. Uh, To call the book demanding is an understatement. Sentences go on for pages. Uh, Although they are grammatically, I mean, grammatically they're pristine. So yeah. they go on a long time, but they make sense. Well, you're not, the first writer to, you're not the first writer to do that either. Faulkner sometimes wrote many pages of, of one sentence, and 
uh, because they were grammatically okay, we understood what he was saying as well. The other reason I mention it is because one uh, reviewer who loved the book said that it took him five days of reading, eight hours a day. There is, that, that sounds to me like a job, you know. Uh, uh, that is demanding an awful lot from most readers. And uh, there was a joke that I read somewhere that uh, the only people who are going to read it, at least initially, were professional reviewers. Now you have been doing rather well. The book is actually in a second printing. So there are other people out there who want to read the book as well. Are you at all surprised? Um, I'm I'm pleasantly surprised. I mean, part of the, this book was scary to do because part of it was the stuff I do tends to be hard. Um, and uh, I think I think one of the things I was trying to do on this book was have something be long and difficult, but have it be fun enough so that somebody would be almost sort of seduced into doing the work. Mm -hmm. the, I mean, I live in an academic community, and I've got a certain number of connections with the avant-garde literary community, and there's a great deal of sort of bitching and moaning about uh, how few people read hard, serious stuff. And the fact of the matter is a lot of hard, serious stuff is just not very much fun and doesn't really doesn't really care very much about the reader um, and is really kind of in-bent. And I think um, one of the things that I was trying to do when I started this was have something that was, to an extent, I think avant-garde or strange or demanding, um, but also would be enough fun so that so that, so that that a reader would sort of want to read it. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I mean well, well, what kind of reader do you have in mind? Because all these terms get thrown out, like Gen X. Now, I don't know if you think of yourself as... Gen X, you're 33 years old, maybe a post-Gen X. Uh, d do you see your readers as intellectuals, as uh, academics, as people in college? I, th I think... Older, younger? I, th this is probably going to sound simplistic. I, I think my ideal reader is somebody who likes to read and is willing, <laughs> is willing at least for a while to give the author the benefit of the doubt. I'm, I'm fairly conscious of the fact that the demands you make on a reader are not in and of themselves valuable, that demands on a reader need to serve a discernible function and there needs to be some sort of payoff. So probably of anything that I've done, um, this is a book that, I'm, that, that I could at least hope would be appealing to sort of a wider, um, a wider audience than anything else. And it comes after a hiatus. You, you published a novel, you published a collection of short stories, and then you also wrote a book about rapping, which we can get into later. But uh, there was this period where you didn't write anything. You went off and studied philosophy uh, because you felt uncomfortable with traditional writing forms. I don't know whether I felt un—I don't know whether I felt uncomfortable. I—I I got very lucky and had some career success very early on, and uh, and and I felt I think that I was just starting to do kind of very cold, desiccated, avant-gardeish stuff. Um, and, uh, and that, the, that, that form and that way of writing didn't seem to, to feel true to me much anymore, but I didn't particularly like classical realism. I, it was basically, I think, just very confused and, and kind of unhappy. And so didn't, didn't publish anything for a while. Were you thinking in the writing of this book that you were redefining the novel form, at least for yourself? No, I think. I think when you're writing something, especially something long, your thoughts are more like, um, geez, does this person seem halfway alive? Is this halfway interesting? I mean, uh -huh. you know, big, big pretentious thoughts about structure. They're just lethal. You know, the minute you start thinking about that, the thing's dead. So, the, As a result, you have the, the usual 
critical exercise of people trying to put you into some category. So we hear William Gaddis's name thrown out a lot, Thomas Pynchon. Uh, I, I have the feeling that that makes you uncomfortable. Yeah, it makes me uncomfortable. Um, Especially Pynchon. Uh, you, well, you don't think of yourself as, pin as Pynchon-esque, do you? Uh, you know what? Th there's this weird – you've probably talked to enough writers to know that there's this there's this egomaniac part in all writers that we want to – you don't want to be compared to anybody else because you want to be uniquely and, you know, unmistakably yourself. Pynchon was somebody who was influential on me when I was first starting out. I haven't read any Pynchon, I would say, in, in eight years. Um, there were There were people – there were other books that were important to me and stuff on my mind when I was doing this. And, you know, Don DeLillo was one of them and William Gaddis was one of them. and uh, Cynthia Ozick was one of them and Manuel Puig was one of them. Pynchon wasn't one of them. Richard Powers, I gather. Powers the Goldbug Variations, for sure. Jonathan I mean, Franzen. Well, these, for, yeah, I mean, Franzen's kind of a friend of mine. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, my friends tend to be on my mind all the time. But that doesn't mean this is, sounds like any of them, although I would think that uh, you would be happy for people to compare you with Don DeLillo who wouldn't after all he's such a wonderful writer yeah the thing about these comparisons are you know that 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 they're flattering but they seem both unfair to me and to the other person you know mm -hmm. I mean it's like pretty I I my opinion is that Don DeLillo is the best fiction writer alive today working and the idea um, the idea of being compared to him seems um, it seems offensive this yeah, is a so book set in the future, and obviously it is not autobiographical in the usual sense, but there's a lot of you in this book, isn't there? Uh, an awful lot about tennis, and tennis played a major role in your life when you were a kid. I played real serious tennis when I was a child. I didn't play it on the sort of level that the people in the book did, but I played it enough to, to start to feel like it was beautiful. You were 17th in the United States Tennis Association's West, Western section when you were 14 years old. That sounds very yeah. impressive. That's a regional <laughs> ranking, and it means that I was probably 4,000th in the nation for my age group. But could you have been better? Was it a matter of uh, choice that you didn't pursue it? I perhaps could have been somewhat better. One of, the, one of the interesting things about playing competitive sports as a child is that you confront your own limitations rather starkly at a certain point. Um, for the first couple of years, I was very good and was regarded as promising. And then after I developed for two or three years, it became very clear exactly how good I was going to be, which is I could probably be a good college player, mm -hmm. but that I was never going to have professional potential or anything. And so you passed up on it. I didn't pass up on it. I kept playing, but there's a difference between training. I mean, the people who seriously, seriously play devote their lives to it sort of the way monks do. I mean, you don't date. You go to bed at a certain time. You eat certain ways. You practice 10 to 12 hours a day. And, I mean, the difference between practicing three hours a day and practicing 12 hours a day is everything. And I certainly never – I never trained seriously after the age of 16. You also, at that point, attracted to other things like writing? I didn't, was not that attracted to writing originally. I, I read a great deal. My parents read a great deal. I liked um, I liked that kind of stuff. I got I, I I do know that as my interest in tennis waned, my interest in academics increased. And uh, um, yeah, I mean, I started doing my homework in high school uh -huh. and discovering that it was somewhat fun. And and then in college, I barely even played on the team because just classes were a lot more interesting. But then there's also the drug factor here, which plays a major role in this book. The, yeah. And then there's also the uh, the film that gives the book its title, Infinite Jest, uh, which is described by many as its MacGuffin. Do you do you think of Infinite Jest, the film that uh, is at the center of this book, as a MacGuffin, or do you see it as uh, just a or as something important to the plot? Well, see, the, you know, woe betide the listener who has to hear the author, you know, talk about 
<clears throat> his little his little plots and strategies when he's doing something. Probably my, my awareness that the that that it may look somewhat like um, like a MacGuffin. I, I mean, I was aware of that. the The book doesn't the book isn't plotted the way many other books are plotted, and pretty much everything that looks like it's something is really also four or five other things. And to say any more, you just you wouldn't want to listen to me talk about mm-hmm. the different ways the films. Well, think. actually, we will come back to the whole idea of plotting, especially in a book like this. And uh, we'll talk about uh, some of the the ideas that you deal with in this book after we take a little break here. We're listen- you're listening to New York & Company on AMA 20 WNYC, New York Public Radio. I'm Leonard Lopate with David Foster Wallace, whose book Infinite Jest uh, is uh, a book that's gotten incredible attention and may even go on to be the best-selling large book in recent years. Be back right after this. Hello, I'm John Updike. And you're listening to New York and Company with Leonard Lopate on WNYC New York Public Radio. We're back with David Foster Wallace, who is, as they say, the award-winning author of The Broom of the System. Uh, and that's a novel, and the story collection Girl with Curious Hair. His short stories and nonfiction have appeared in many magazines. And his latest, Infinite Jest, uh, a novel uh, just published by Little Brown, has also been excerpted in the New Yorker, Harper's, and Paris Review. You've had an, a series of... It wasn't in Paris Review. It wasn't in Paris Review? It, it just not. says they it's lie. In, it's in Grand Street. Uh, in Grand Street. Yeah. Well, I, I read it right off the sheet. Who, yeah, oh, it's, it's not your fault. Yeah. Well, anyway, uh, it, it was in those other publications. <laughs> you, you, you told me during the break that you're rather nervous. Why are you nervous? You've gotten uh, so much praise for this book so far. I would think that you'd be thrilled. Um, well, it's, you know, they're, they're, uh, part of the book is sort of about a culture of kind of attention and hype and, and image and stuff. And so there are a number of complicated ironies about this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also, I mean, writers are combinations of very shy people and egomaniacs. As I probably enjoy praise and attention, but I enjoy it on my own terms when I can sit at home and, and chuckle by myself. It's, I was uh, surprised that you hadn't read some of the very nice reviews that I have before me. Uh, so you're avoiding them for the, for the uh, time being? I, you know, p- part of the thing is, it, in a way, I mean, I'm older now, and, and I've done some stuff before. Reading reviews, I mean, reviews aren't, aren't for the writer. They're a judge kind of telling a prospective buyer whether the book's good or not, and reading them is rather like eavesdropping on two people talk you know it's very tempting to do it, but you always end up getting your feelings hurt and uh, and they're not designed to help you you know they're not for you they're 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 for potential buyers. I will read them at some point I won't be able to resist, but um I'm working on other stuff right now, and it just makes me nuts so most of those articles uh, try to summarize the plot. And then they say at some point, well, this is a plot that's impossible to summarize. Plot was not the key for you here. Um, w- you would have to define key. <laughs> I mean, there... <laughs> well, were you, were you driven... Was the plot a driving force, or was the plot just an excuse to... Uh, something to hang all the other things that you were interested in onto? I, I would I would say neither. I would say the idea of plot interests me, and and plots function in, um, in in various kinds of entertainment, and how people relate to plot is interesting 
to me and some of the book is sort of about that and some of the plot kind of plays with that idea although not in any kind of coy metafictional way so a lot of the a question like that is almost impossible to answer it was real important to me I worked on it real hard it doesn't I don't think look anything like the plot of a, of a regular book mm -hmm. and if you'd want to hear me explain why you'd have to you know order in lunch and sit back <laughs> for two hours and nobody wants to hear it you also said that it doesn't look like the book you imagined uh, th that is part of the struggle I, I, I have some quotes somewhere I'll have to find out uh, I'll have to try to find it um, well, I don't, th I don't. I object to the cover because it looks like the American Airlines safety packet. <laughs> but this is a long-standing feud between me and Little Brown. I sent them a number of ingenious cover ideas, which they rejected. So, uh -huh. well, I, I that think cover is under protest. <laughs> I think the cover is rather effective, so it's okay. You, you said here there's no meteorology <laughs> in the book, though. Well, whatever. You, you, you've written the fiction always comes out so horrifically defective, so hideous a betrayal of all your hopes for it. That's what I really meant. Oh that, well, that that yeah. that. That though is about that though is about what it's like what it's like to write the thing and how how marvelous it seems when it's in your head and how mm -hmm. how real and therefore un unperfect it seems when it comes out. That was for that little thing they asked me to write about what it was like to write it. I've had that experience even in in the most simple aspects sure. of writing. I I'll work something out while I'm in the shower and then I'll sit down to write it. I've, I've honed it in the shower. And then, when, of course, I've forgotten all of those clever little details I stuck in in the shower. And what comes out is so much less interesting than that wonderful original germ of an idea. You know, the, the whole thing about perfectionism, I mean, you were asking before about the years that I didn't write. The perf you know, per the perfectionism is very dangerous because, of course, if, if you're if your fidelity to perfectionism is too high, you never do anything because doing anything results, it, it's, it's actually kind of tragic because it means you sacrifice how gorgeous and perfect it is in your head for what it really is. Mm -hmm. And um, there were a couple of years, I think, where I really struggled with that. You know, the book is, the book is imperfect, but I also know that the book is exactly the best I could have done for the, for the three years that I was working on it. And you so feel good about it. I feel, yeah, I'm, this is, th I'm, this is the first thing that I've done. There are, there are things and other things I've done that I'm very proud of. This is the first thing that I've done that I'm proud of. Like, no line was unconsidered. No fact was unresearched. You know, Michael and I, I mean, it was line edited twice. Everything, was, you know, there's like nothing in there that I'm going to wince mm -hmm. about and go, oh, I screwed that up. And, uh, and, and so it feels nice. You'll come across something early in the book and wonder why did he put that in and then 300 pages later or 1,000 pages later you realize that there was a reason for that sentence that seemed totally extraneous earlier. It wasn't. It's real careful, but... As was Now, when you were writing it, were you conscious of that as well? Throw in this line now, knowing that you're going to get to it later? Or yeah. did you go back and stick in the line as a kind of a foretelling? It was, it was more or less the former. It was a very strange... Th I mean, I've, you know, I've written a lot of fiction. I haven't written anything this big and just the sheer amount of stuff that... I mean, most of my brain was given over to this stuff. It was kind of hard to get around in the world for a couple of years. Uh -huh. so. you, you, you basically, no matter what you were doing, teaching or whatever else, there in the back of your head was all this I stuff buzzing around. Else. I, didn't, I, I was teaching part-time at Emerson when I started this, but one of the things I did is I, I didn't work for two years, and I lived in, a, in an apartment in Syracuse that was, that was um, roughly the size of most people's front hall. And it was, it was kind of neat because the book, I mean, I know this sounds very cliche. The book became realer to me mm -hmm. than elements of the real world, which various friends remarked on. Um, and how did you get out of it? Do you, can you watch television or go to the movies or 
go to a supermarket or something just to get you I went to some movies and sat in the front row the problem was in that the front row so the they would really was, be overwhelmed well the book was about various things that I have used at different points in my life to escape so that when I would go to a movie and sit in the front row by then I had done so much research on art films that I was more interested in the lamping you know <laughs> and directors so there was there were a couple of years it was neat but there really wasn't any way to get away from it uh-huh. it was sort of like having something shackled to your skull in a way this is uh, like a first novel in that it uh, it, that includes it seems to include everything you probably were thinking about for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> they usually say that's in the first novel, not in the second novel. But you you you've included everything, including uh, because it's set in the future, uh, some really funny ideas like uh, subsidized time. I don't. The, it's not meant to be funny. It's meant to be entirely plausible. It seems to me. It seems to me to be, given the level of courage Congress has about raising taxes, it seems to be a, a fairly painless and plausible way of reducing the deficit. So that we, our calendars would be uh, have things like this is the year of, like the Chinese have the year of the rat and the year of the dragon. Yeah. We'd have the year of the rap, the, the, the whopper or the uh, tux medicated pad. It, it, part of the thing this is some, a lot of this stuff was cut out but part of the thing in the book was that the, the actual China was not pleased at what they viewed as the United States perversion of the <laughs> lunar uh-huh. nominated calendar. But They thought we'd stolen the idea from them. More or less. My guest on New York and Company is David Foster Wallace, whose Infinite Jest is published by Little Brown. And uh, this is uh, a book that is getting uh, incredible amount of attention uh, for a writer who most people had not heard of uh, until very recently, Newsweek, Esquire. uh, I don't know. You've had stories all over the world. I assume that Vanity Fair is just around the corner. Uh, do you feel this is an invasion in your pri- into your privacy? I'm pretty good at um, I, I'm pretty good at drawing lines now. There's um, I'm grateful to Little Brown. I realize that the way the industry is now, there um, there's a certain amount of press stuff that they require to recoup their investment on the book. Um, um, so you're I, doing this press tour uh, slightly under protest? No, I, oh. I I I I said that I was willing to do it. I also teach, you know, and my kids. I, I mean, that I'm missing two weeks of class, and you know, I can't do any more. I don't mind doing it for a while. I don't really care about the invasion of privacy. It just makes it very hard to do new work. I mean, y- you sort of give yourself to a book, and then when it's done, that book that book's over. But of course, given the way it's structured, other people get interested in it only when it's over, and that's fine. But I just I'm doing different stuff now, and I mm-hmm. don't want to think about this for too long. Still, there's a there, there's two-edged sword here. On the one hand, you understand that what Little Brown is doing is really all intended to help you and sell books. But when your face is made into some kind of a line-drawing, iconic logo, you have to wonder about what impact it's going to have on your own life. Well, my face sort of looks like a line-drawing anyway. It's uh, not does that it? big a <laughs> Well, what's the... Uh, how do you teach? Uh, I can't imagine somebody who writes like this telling anybody to do anything other than follow his or her instincts you know it's real interesting i had i was a i was a very difficult person to teach when i was a student and i thought i was smarter than my teachers and they told me a lot of things that uh a lot of things that i that i that i thought were uh uh, were retrograde or outdated or bs and uh i have learned more teaching in the last three years than i ever learned as a student and a lot of it is that when you see student work for instance students work who where the point um, whether it's stated or not, is basically that they're clever. And to try to articulate to the students how empty how empty and frustrating it is for a reader to invest their time and attention in something and to feel that the agenda is basically 
to show you that the writer's clever. Mm-hmm. All the kind of stuff, right? When I'm doing my little onanistic, clever stuff in grad school, that when my that when my professors would talk to me about it, I go, well, they don't understand. I'm a genius. Blah 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 <laughs> blah. Now, of course, that now that I'm the teacher, I'm starting to learn. Of course, it's like the older you get, the smarter your parents get. Now I'm starting to learn that they had some they had some smart stuff to tell me. And you're probably uh, further victimized by all of this because certain kinds of students will gravitate to to your class, and those are people who think that they're kindred spirits. Yeah, in a certain way, although in class, I'm, I, my, the only way that I'm well-known at Illinois State is that I am the grammar Nazi. And so <laughs> any student whose deployment of a semicolon is not absolutely Mozart-esque knows that they're going to get a C in my class. And uh, so my classes tend to have like four students in them. It's really <laughs> a lot of fun. Well, that'll all change after this book, don't you think? You, you said you're working on something else, another novel? Don't want to talk about it. Uh-huh. Thank you. <laughs> Do you write short stories as Sometimes. well? Uh-huh. Uh, they're short stories that take care of another side of your of uh, your literary needs? I, I in, a, in other words, an idea pops up in your head. You know this isn't a novel. You know it isn't anything else. But you, it's an itch that has to be scratched? You know, it, I, I'm not sure that it's, um, I don't know. Some things taste short and some things taste long. That long stuff is more about people than ideas. I don't. I think s- most of my stuff that started with an idea has ended up not working very well. Could you read a little bit for us? Sure. My guest on New York and Company is David Foster Wallace. His latest novel is called Infinite Jest, and uh, I'm sure you've read about it. This is a this is a chunklet that occurs early on, and it may not make a whole lot of sense, but it is self-contained and is mercifully short. An oiled guru sits in yogic full lotus in spandex and tank top. He's maybe 40. He's in full lotus on top of the towel dispenser just above the shoulder pull station in the weight room of the Enfield Tennis Academy, Enfield, Massachusetts. Saucers of muscle protrude from him and run together so that he looks almost crustacean. His head gleams, his hair jet black and extravagantly feathered. His smile could sell things. Nobody knows where he comes from or why he's allowed to stay, but he's always in there, sitting yogic about a meter off the rubberized floor of the weight room. His tank top says transcend in silkscreen. On the back, it's got deus providibit in glow orange. It's always the same tank top. Sometimes the color of the spandex leggings changes, though. Excuse me. This guru lives off the sweat of others, literally the fluids and salts and fatty acids. He's like a beloved nut. He's an academy institution. You do like maybe some sets of benches, some leg curls, inclined abs, crunches, work up a good hot shellac of sweat. Then if you let him lick your arms and forehead, he'll pass on to you some little nugget of fitness guru wisdom. His big one for a long time was, quote, and the Lord said, let not the weight thou wouldst pull to thyself exceed thine own weight. His advice on conditioning and injury prevention tends to be pretty solid as the consensus. His tongue is little and rough, but feels good, like a kitty's. It isn't like a faggy or sexual thing. Some of the girls let him lick them, too. He's harmless as they come. He supposedly went way back with the Academy's founder in the past. Some of the newer kids think he's a creep and want him out of there. What kind of guru wears spandex and lives off others' perspiration, they complain. God only knows what he does in there when the weight room's closed at night, they say. Sometimes the newer kids who won't even let them near won't even let him near them come in and set the resistance on the shoulder pull at a weight greater than their own weight. The guru on the towel dispenser just sits there and smiles and doesn't say anything. 
They hunker down then and grimace and try to pull the bar down. But lo, the overweighted shoulder pull becomes a chin-up. Up they go, their own bodies, toward the bar they're trying to pull down. Everyone should get at least one good look at the eyes of a man who finds himself rising toward what he wants to pull down to himself. And I like how the guru and the towel dispenser doesn't laugh at them, or even shake his head sagely on its big brown neck. He just smiles, hiding his tongue. He's like a baby. Everything he sees hits him and sinks without bubbles. He just sits there. I want to be like that, able to just sit all quiet and pull life toward me, one forehead at a time. His name is supposedly Lyle. That is the end of the trunklet. And that is the end of the segment. But uh, first, let me uh, quote something from Atlantic Monthly, Sven Beikertz, who wrote about this book. He said, The novel is confusing, yes, and maddening in myriad ways. It is also resourceful, hilarious, intelligent, and unique. Those who stay with it will find the whole world lit up as though by black light. And we're talking about David Foster Wallace's latest novel with the misleading Shakespearean title, misleadingly, anyway, Infinite Jest. David Foster Wallace is the author of the novel The Broom of the System uh, and a collection of short stories, Girl with Curious Hair. His stories have appeared in the New Yorker, Playboy, Harper's, the Paris Review, Story, Conjunctions, the Missouri Review. He was an awarded an O. Henry and also a John Train Humor Prize uh, and, a, and the Quality Paperbacks New Voices Award. Uh, he teaches English at Illinois State University, and I thank him very much for having come to New York today to talk about his book. Thank you.